they're bad, they're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Bye 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 bye. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right, man. How are you? I I do you know what? Every time I listen back to the podcast, there's something I have to. I it doesn't make sense why it always seems like I go bye 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 well before you do. And I just want to explain to the listener, it's because I know when I've hit the record button when it started, whereas David doesn't know. So I always have to lead it. That's, it's because I'm harmony. <laughs> I don't think there's any harmony <laughs> involved. Yeah, in and you're bone, you're bone thugs. <laughs> oh my goodness, how many people are going to get that reference? <laughs> I reckon uh, Ian what, Dark will. What was the? What was the? What? How did that, that song go? Bonehead thugs and um, I can't even remember did, what they did oh, now. What's it called? It had people going up to heaven, being taken by this guy, didn't they? Meet me at the crossroads. <laughs> Meet me at the crossroads. Oh, so they did. We die um, and we actually, die and we die and we die. And we die. Da, da, no, da, da, that da, bit. Yeah, that bit was the Blazing Squad version. Bone Thugs and Harmony was the original. <laughs> Did Blazing Squad cover it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was the first single by Blazing Squad. Oh my god! But the thing is, it wasn't that cover. Must have come like a year after it was released. Pretty much, yeah. I think because they were from are they Walthamstow or Cheltenham or, or somewhere? What Bones and Thugs quite... and Harmony? No, I think they're I think they're American. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't Blazing Squad the they Blazing Squad? I mean, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but weren't Blazing Squad? There were like thirty of them, and they never made any money because there were thirty of them. Yeah, it's like uh, the same with um, who did Twenty One Seconds to Go that Romeo came out of. Oh and, yeah, uh, I got Twenty One yeah. Seconds to Go. I got Twenty One Seconds to Go. Oh, I don't think that's the reason why the Blazing Squad didn't make any money there. To be fair, <laughs> no, that was just what their <laughs> mum told me. <laughs> yeah. Well, someone was mentioning in the Facebook group when we were talking about potentially creating a bad boy running Wikipedia page that apparently at one point on Wikipedia, uh, Blazing Squad had 200 members <laughs> of the Blazing Squad. <laughs> oh, is it one of those things that everyone everyone um, said they shook the hand of Frank Sinatra? Didn't they? That was always the thing oh, is about that it. Right? Yeah, they were doing. But everyone everyone claimed to have been in ba- Blazing Squad at some point. <laughs> Brilliant, but well, I, I'm desperate to get a bad boy running Wikipedia page up and get up and running just to see just how far it spirals out of control. We've already got quite a few links actually to the to podcast from people quoting us as a source. What, yeah, what they, yeah. I what mean, what are they thinking? Yeah, I mean, the good thing is no one's ever going to go and listen to it through a whole episode to find out whether what is said in one of the episodes is true to then clarify the source of information. I think they're just going to give it to us. So um, I, I think do badders get out there just start start listing off us as sources for random things on on Wikipedia. Just see what sticks. I don't know how it works. Will we get banned? Will we get kicked out? I don't. I think I think it's a. Um... 
a traffic driver. I've I've seen this as a um a bona fide um SEO. Uh Yeah, that's strategy. why I did it. Yeah. <laughs> So the ones on there currently, I've put up myself. So I've linked them to the most high-profile either races or individuals that we've had on the podcast. And the assumption is that hopefully people will will see the sources and discover us. But potentially, it could be good for us, our traffic in general. Um, I love hey, welcome I, to the podcast. Welcome to the Bad Boy Running Podcast. My name is Jody Rainsford. This is uh, my name is David Hellard. This is a podcast all about search engine optimization and um, <laughs> digital marketing and and um, um, ensemble um, R and B groups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another level. They. I was talking about them the other day as well. The thing is, the Blazing Squad, they actually had a song I really loved called Flip Reverse It. It was their, their final single. It was great. It was just a kicking tune. If that came on in a nightclub and you didn't know who it was, people would be just... What, what nightclub would you be in that they'd be playing that? Any nightclub called Icon, I'd say. <laughs> Oceanas, any of those. Oceanas, yeah. There's a classic, classic... Um, there's a classic seaside town... Uh, nightclub names maybe a jumping jacks a hollywoods hollywoods that's nice any 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 nightclub that they <laughs> might pretend was the name of the nightclub in the office <laughs> roxy's yeah um how you doing so um whew, whew. how are you feeling now a week on from your your challenge oh so if you okay this is this is a this is a brilliant piece of um, it is you being Scylla Black, um, <laughs> which again reference will be lost on so many people there. Um, this is it, you're very cunning what you've done. So basically, last week uh, David <laughs> tells me that um, uh, Tom Dark, um, a do badder, um, of course he's a do badder, um, uh, but also a presenter on the Monkey Tennis. Um, podcast the unofficial uh steve coogan ripoff um uh, feed. I, I also like to think it's a it's a bad boy running spin-off as well it, in many senses he's really nailed his colors to the bad boy running um mast as it were i'd like to think that much of their growth is down to our promotion although their podcast absolutely although their podcast was around first was it around first I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Alan was. <laughs> he definitely was. Um, okay, so basically, so there's been this long-running um, thing with um, with Tom Dark, also known as Ian Dark. And um, last week, David said that he'd laid down a challenge um, because he's got into the uh, London Marathon. And the challenge was uh, that who was going to go sub four first? Will it be Will it be monkey tennis or will it be bad boy running? And um, and so I thought, okay, no, that's a good challenge. So I'm getting up for the challenge. Of course, as soon as I go to Tom and say, "Bring it on," he's like, "Well, wasn't it your idea?" <laughs> <laughs> so David has played a very, very clever game of um, of pairing Absolutely. us up for this. That's that's quite quite good. Things you can't back down now. That's the thing. No, no, no. It's been it's been made public. But I like it. I like it a lot. I like what you. I like the sneakiness. I like the element of challenge as well. I like the choice of challenger. 
that's excellent. Um, and yeah, I think I think this is gonna this is gonna be a good one. Do we want to take on any more um, any more podcasts out there? Ooh, I don't want to take on other running podcasts because they're probably probably better at running. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Probably not running podcasts, but maybe I'm trying to think. Let's take on um, not Alibi the the podcast which everyone loved to do Cereal. with the murders. Serial. Let's take on Serial, <laughs> whoever they may be. Take on Serial. Yeah, let's take on Radio Four Women's Hour. Women's <laughs> perfect. But actually, following on from, so I I, I knew about this because Tom has received his letter from uh, London Marathon. He's received his uh, bit in the post saying congratulations. A lot of people have received their commiserations. What's brilliant? Discovered on social media this week. The person on the front of the magazine, which is commiserations, you haven't got in. I oh, know it's congratulations, yeah, you've you're got in. in. Yeah. The person whose photo is on the front hasn't got in. <laughs> I mean, that is a that is a like a massive faux pas, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that oh, is a, a really a massive faux pas. There are two. There are two people who are fronting someone's joy or disappointment. It's going to be that guy, yeah. and then the woman who's crying or whatever in the. Um, Sorry, you didn't make it. Just make sure both of them get a fucking entry. Go on, I mean, like, yeah, really, I mean, just how difficult is it? Especially the congratulations guy. Yeah. Who then applies and and because sure, you, you, no doubt they earn the rights having taken the photo themselves, but still, there is, there does come a little bit of. They probably didn't ask permission, I imagine, and it would be quite grating. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether that. But he 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 said that he'd um, he's actually used throughout the magazine as well. It's not as if he's just his picture on the front. He's almost like featured. Oh, so he's the new Howard from the the Lloyd's adverts. Uh... He's their new... Isn't Lloyd's from Halifax? Isn't he from Halifax? Oh, Halifax. <laughs> that, Halifax. Those adverts worked, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Halifax. He's the new Lloyd. Howard. Howard. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at something else. I was reading about Bane Thugs and Harmony then. I was getting quite into it. And then... <laughs> Howard. Poor Howard. Poor we Howard. could take on Howard. I reckon we beat him at math. Oh, I'm not sure I would. Um, so, um, but anyway, how is how is everything? Have you have you got a training plan? Have you got a, a schedule? Do you know what races you're going to be doing in the build up? Are they going to be? Are you going to try and jeopardise Mr. Dark? Of course, we'll try and jeopardise Mr. Dark. Um, well, he's got. The thing is, okay, for a start, he's he benefits from having a cushy job. So he basically he um, carries the coats for um, uh, pop stars. Um, and, Access and all, to lots of drugs that could be beneficial taxi, for performance. Yeah. He organises taxis and stuff like that, um, those sort of things. So he, he does that, which is, makes it, he gets lots of rest, has lots of time off. Um, so he, he has an advantage in that respect. Um, so I was thinking, so, so what I've done is I've actually, I've joined a, uh, I've joined a, it's not quite a gym. Okay, oh, sorry, this, is, this is quite interesting. I've joined this gym okay. and their marketing is amazing. I've, I've never experienced marketing as good as this. And, and I, what, know, what's I, it called? It's called The Performance Project. And okay. um, it's, 
it's, it's called semi-private training, which is a brilliant term because it doesn't mean anything at all. Because what it means is small group training. But small group training yeah. makes it sound as like, oh, I'm in a group. Whereas you say it's semi-private, it means like, oh, that's almost, it's almost one-to-one. But semi-private doesn't make any sense. There's, there's, the word is like an oxymoron. You can't have semi-private. It's either private or it's not. Um, so you have like these group sessions and, uh, and it's all like upper body stuff and everything, but they've got it. They are really, really slick. So I'm, I'm going there. I'm doing some, cause I'm, I'm really bad at, um, at upper body stuff as people who yeah. um, watch my video, um, trying to attempt nuts, um, saw. And, and so that's, that's what I'm focusing with that. And then I'm basically following an 80, 20 running plan, um, for, for the running. Um, which is why I think, it, like we said last week, it'd be quite good to get someone on um, talking about heart rate and everything. Um, yeah. I've got the Portsmouth Coastal Marathon booked in. I think there's going to be quite a few do-badders going to that now. Um, Has that got a bad reputation amongst the do-badders? Um, or is it a good reputation? I can't, it's definitely got a reputation. Um, it's, it's not the most scenic of marathons. Yeah. Um, because it, well, it's, it's called Portsmouth Coastal Marathon, so it's in Portsmouth and it's not, it's a, it's a funny one. It's not on paper. It looks awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then when you do it, it sort of looks awful. Um, but actually it's not that bad. I don't know. That's not okay. the best. That's not the best review for it. I don't know why I, I've, I'm choosing to run it again. Um, I think it's made because I, like I mentioned before, that that's where my my PB was originally set, and and I had a terrible race. Um, and is it a quick a quick course? I no, I mean like you're, parts of it you're running it on gravel and stuff, um, and then a bit of trail, yeah. and you know it's not a it's not an easy bit. And and if the if the weather's bad as well, I mean like parts of it you're running along the seawall, and it's it's horrible, and they're running across a roundabout, and you know a roundabout that hasn't been closed off. Um, yeah, I'm, this isn't this isn't the best advert for it. But because it's Christmas, because it's near Christmas, the atmosphere yeah. is quite good, and there's people with mince pies and all that sort of stuff as well. So, um, so that's 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 that race there. Um, I probably need to fit something in. So he's when is when is London Marathon April? Yeah, normally towards the end of April. I'd imagine it'd be around the twentieth or twenty sixth and something like that. So yeah, so I need to I need to fit something else in um, before that to. To, to test my progress but um but that that's my that's my plan at the moment it's a good perfect time to start yeah absolutely and uh, if you can do a marathon before christmas then yeah you're laughing you've got a good four months yeah yeah absolutely so i think so what would actually be beneficial is if on the podcast we do a, um, a marathon update and then you can give me advice on what i should be doing um because then anyone that's running london or any other alternative marathon in the spring um they can follow along with it yeah absolutely I and mean, we we did that a little bit last year but then we we only did it for one episode but <laughs> 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 well, we could even publish a training plan potentially if people wanted that they normally last 12 to 16 weeks and we can do three different levels as well uh, if you want to do cross training or if you want to do bms alongside it i mean um, or the the problem is if you were going to go with a um, uh, a Rob Young style training plan, you should have started six months ago because we're 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 in the taper period now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But we 
Actually, uh, it's, it's strange because there used to be a time there were loads of training plans for free online. Then they disappeared because people like Runners Wild now want to charge for them. But then they're now popping up because people want the SEO from them. So you get the, some of the races, some of the charities, but they're not necessarily that good. So there, and, and there's so many different schools of thought now on training where some people never want to run more than 15 miles. And uh, some people like Bruno want to do it without ever having to run, but just walking the whole thing in training. Um, so it, it, I think it's getting harder to actually find a proven and good marathon plan out there without having to do lots of research. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they used to be everywhere, seen... didn't they? And that, you, that actually used to be quite confusing. She was like, they, these all conflict with each other. Um, yeah. But, they're, they're, I but suppose there's seen... a lot of apps and stuff out now, isn't there? That's that's the thing that, that like, be like you said, yeah, them down in order to try and flog an app or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, there there are loads of apps out there. I think I think part of the problem with the apps, a lot of them don't actually use your your phys- physiological data. And so they, they're not actually, actually as bespoke as you think. But also with some of them, it can be quite hard to actually plan ahead and to find out what you're doing exactly over the 16 weeks because they, they tell you week on week. Yeah. And it's, it's really good to get some half marathons in your diary, some races, and to be able to schedule and plan around that. Um, but yeah, let's know, uh, do ballads. Who, who else is doing autumn marathons? Sorry, spring marathons. And do people want to program? Do people have their own training plans you know where do they find them which ones are good which ones do, have they tried and haven't worked um, but if you've seen chip uh, kogi has um just released his training before uh, the berlin marathon no no go on really interesting so I, I don't know if this has been done before that often um but he's just released his actual training notes for the kind of five to six weeks in the build-up to Berlin. He hasn't put his final week there, which is quite interesting because that's, I guess, quite important. But it's different to what people were expecting. And I also don't know when he's released this this training log, how true it is. Right. Maybe he's just oh, okay. released it. Oh, as- mind games. Nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it probably is true because there's there's been a, a corresponding article by someone who did the training with him, who was a journalist who then gave his insight into actually training with him and, and what it, and what it looked like. But it was really interesting because I think compared to what you'd expect, he doesn't really. It, so a lot of training cycles for things like the marathon tend to be on four week cycles where. You, you build up, then you have a week where you, you race a 10K or you race a half, but you, you cut your miles a bit, give your body a chance to catch up. But his, his mileage from five weeks out was 118 miles, 110 miles, 119 miles, 110 miles, 113 miles the week before. So the week before his marathon, uh, sorry, two weeks before his marathon, he, he doesn't seem to taper very much at all. He's still doing 113 miles. Marathon week, he doesn't mention, and I assume he drops his miles. But most people who follow a training plan do at least a two-week, but possibly a three-week taper before the marathon. So it's really interesting to see that. Also, he, um, he does very long and fast tempo runs for his long run. Right. So his long runs only about 30 to 40 seconds. 
slower. Um, I think it might be less, 30 seconds slower than his marathon pace. And he'll do 40 kilometers for that. What? Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is at altitude and cross country. So although not the same as cross country through the, the muddy fields of, of the UK, it's still going to take a few seconds off, um, you know, be a few seconds slower. So he's, he's really hammering it out for his long runs, which is, I mean, to, to put it in context, I, I you know, did a bit of maths and he's, he's doing it about 16% slower than his marathon pace, which actually, if you're a six minute miler, for marathon 236 237 that 16% equates to a minute slower so so for a lot of us that's what we're doing um ourselves but we're not running out there doing 40k's as our long runs at that pace and a lot of the wisdom is about time on feet and just getting your legs used to being running running for that distance but then again so there's there's lots of things there that are not necessarily what you'd imagine he'd be doing based on what what we do but then again it's only five weeks out and part of me is thinking it could be that he's used to running 110 to 120 miles so regularly that actually running 120 miles 110 miles isn't that hard for him right compared to when we first because you think about your marathon training plan when you when you do your one starting in jan you'll probably start off with 12 miles as your long run and you'll probably do 30 miles as your, your weekly mileage, maybe even a little bit less. And you'll build that up to 50 miles, 55 miles, potentially 60 miles if you're doing a sub-3, sub-245 program. You know, you may be in 70 miles. But actually, we then build up from this low point of 20 to 30 miles up to a high point over the course of 12 weeks before a taper. And I'm, I'm assuming that's because our body's not used to running that distance. So we have to ease our body up to that distance without getting injured without destroying it yeah whereas if he's always at 120 mile 110 mile 100 mile base level for the whole of his life you know the last three years <laughs> then and it might be he's not but say he's doing that then your body's not going to be as tired it's going to be used to running those distances those speeds and so maybe that's why he doesn't need as much of a taper Maybe that's why he can run at near marathon pace because it's just, it's still quite easy for him. That's crazy. But the, um, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, I, um, when you are not as in tune with your, uh, with statistics like that as, uh, as I haven't been in the past, um, uh, yeah, because I've, I've not I've not really monitored stuff really carefully, and then that's something that um, I'm going to be working on um, before mm. you know this next marathon. Um, but when you like when you hear that, when you t- it, it, it it just sounds ridiculous. It sounds it sounds it, it almost it just sounds like too difficult to comprehend. Does I mean when like, yeah, does, does okay. that I mean from your perspective as as a as a uh, as a as a strong runner, a strong marathon runner. Um, what how i mean how does that sound to you does that sound crazy does it sound like yeah yeah i mean parts of it do seem because when it but it's it's so hard to it's so hard to compare even uh someone who's trained hard like myself to him because say when i was doing mds i got up to 125 miles i did that a couple of times i i had an average of probably 
95, 100 miles for the last 10 weeks, maybe three months. Um, I can't remember the exact stats. And actually, that wasn't so bad. The, the long runs become normal. Running 28, 30 miles, it's not that hard. You're like, yeah, this is, I feel a little bit achy at the end. But all of those, and maybe this is because I was building up still, all of those I did at quite a leisurely pace. It would probably be for me eight minute 30 miles. Um, whereas marathon race pace for me at the time would have been about six ten. So it's quite a lot slower. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, when you put it in yeah. that perspective. But then again, I was training for an ultra where I was yeah. running back-to-back long days, yeah. Saturdays and Sundays. And so – and actually, a lot of training plans, when you get up to – you get closer to marathon distance and your longer runs, you're meant to do progressive runs where the last third are at marathon pace or you're starting slowly and then building the pace until the last few miles of marathon pace. So so part of it kind of makes sense with the logic behind it. Um, I mean, the one-week taper is – is amazing that's really interesting and i've i've done two weeks before and felt tired so but the there's some other notes that the so someone who'd actually trained him during this um he's the first thing he noted was that he was extremely inflexible compared to all the other runners there and most of the other runners could touch the toes um with straight legs and he was nowhere near so that's quite interesting because I've I've been similar myself. I'm so inflexible and I've always had in the back of my mind that actually a lot of runners are flexible. Um, and even though that tightness is good for elasticity, that I've I've been told that most really top runners are quite flexible. Really? Um, he apparently does short warm up, short warm downs compared to top end athletes. He well, when do, you say uh, short, how, I mean, how are we talking about a, a couple of minutes as opposed to? It would be 10, 15 minutes versus 25 to 30, or some of them just a 10 minute before his tempo. 25 which, which to 30, is that normal? 25 to 30 warm up and warm down? For, for some athletes, yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. I know. I mean, then that's partly why they do so many miles, because if you're doing that as you warm up and you warm down, yeah. you've suddenly got six miles, which is not training. Um, they said he, he rarely pushed himself to the limit and that um, three times a week, Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays, um, he ran hard, but he rarely pushed himself to the limit during those sessions. So he was able to get straight into a jog within one minute at the end of every workout without a problem. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say I bury myself quite often when I do intervals. Yeah. Um, can jog within a minute but yeah and and when i do tempo runs as well my thursday session i do tend to bury myself and that's quite interesting because i've i've always been slightly the opinion you know the harder i push there the more gains i'll get but maybe that's wrong yeah um and yeah the other thing was just that he did run these these very long tempo runs every morning it was it was at six ten on an empty stomach so that's really interesting. So he's he's running his 40K on an empty stomach. I don't know whether he... It doesn't say whether he takes gels with him or drinks or refuels. But um, I know a lot of people, when they, when they start running, the advice given 
particularly by <laughs> the gel companies or drink companies, yeah. is to, 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 to go out and practice your marathon with all your gels and your drinks. And, and that's just not true of many people I know who are more experienced runners. You try your gels, you make sure they're not horrible, you make sure your stomach's used to it, but then your long runs, you take a gel in case you need it, maybe have one halfway round, but actually you train your body to use its fat. So it's interesting that he's doing it on an empty stomach, no breakfast whatsoever. Why, why do you think um, gels companies would suggest that you take the gels out for, to practice? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> why? Why was that? It wouldn't be in their interest in any way, would it? <laughs> I mean, it, it it is a good idea, and just to make sure you're not going to get the shits, or that you can actually don't get a stitch with them, and and it it is that's the main thing that goes wrong in a marathon. I'd say it's just oh stomach. yeah, no, it is. It absolutely. I think it's in it. It's, it's that's well known. It's your stomach first, then your feet. Um, mm. and the feet, you know, in a marathon, your feet will hold up for a marathon, um, but your stomach will that can that can ruin any race, even yeah. a race. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is good to practice, and to, you know, for the gel companies themselves, they want you to practice because for them, PR wise, there's nothing worse than you going out doing your first gel and having spent four months, you ruin your race because of the gel. So. Um, but it's really interesting that because I've I've always wondered how the elites properly fuel on their races because not many of them use gels they tend to use drinks yeah. and you quite often see them pick up a drink and throw half of it away. Um, it's partly because they're so quick that they can get near to the end without their their glycogen stores depleting. But yeah, uh, it's, it seems it's if, if this is uh, indicative of most elites, it's it's also because they're just used to running 40k on an empty stomach. So, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise everyone does that. Um, you will bonk a lot more, especially if you, when you're training and building up your longer miles. If you're not used to doing a 20-mile run, I wouldn't advise going out on an empty stomach the first time you do it. But um, I often go out hungover with, you know, lacking everything <laughs> in my body. And if you get through it, hopefully, if you, I guess the issue is then making sure you refuel at the end of it so that you, you've actually got energy in you for next time. But, yeah, but I'll um I'll post that in the Facebook group. Really interesting reading. But I don't know how much you can take for it from it because no. it's just a snapshot without any context really. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um I mean it's just it's difficult to um that, that's the problem, isn't it? Everyone is so different. Yeah, and you just there's so many variables involved in training plans. And so many variables involved yeah. in the best way to train and then balancing that with how, you know, your propensity to get injured and existing injuries and, you know, and everything else. It, you can see why it's difficult to, to come up with, with, with generic training plans. Um, anyway, it's not difficult to come up with them. It's just, I think, with, with generic training plans, you have to have a um, – uh, they have to come with, a, like, a, a caveat that – this is the basis for your own plan and you need to yeah. you need to have the confidence to be able to alter it yourself that you know you don't follow it strictly if you're not feeling great on a day um and you're fit or you're fit, you know, you're still sore or something like that then you don't go out and smash it out just to try and keep with it you have to listen to your body and everything the, the that's the problem isn't it it's more nuanced than um yeah just you know follow this plan you will hit a 245 marathon yeah, and even if you start 
a plan with someone else and you're you've both starting it because you want to go say sub 330 and you've both got a 42 minute 10k time it could be that they've got a 42 minute 10k time having not trained at all and just being naturally talented and that you've got a 42 10k time of when you're at your absolute fittest and so the progression of the two of you when you start doing all of this extra mileage is going to completely change and and most plans will have you running to similar distances for similar times and one of those two is going to find it incredibly easy and if anything it's, it's going to get to a point where they actually find it frustrating whereas the other one it might be that they just will never be able to to do all the mileages at the pace that the plan says so yeah you've got to be you've, you've just got to every now and then assess what's going on i'd say um, this may seem incredibly um uh ignorant but i no one's really i've never really asked this question um so i, I you see training plans and they say oh 245 or 330 or something yeah what how what i don't understand is how you can tell someone that that's going to be a 330 training plan that if you follow this plan you'll be 330 how does how does that work surely there are there are um uh, like times and stuff you have to hit in order you know during that training in order to yeah. end up at 330 so so say if i so right so for example i followed a 245 training plan and my marathon best so far has been 4 11 there's no way i'm going to hit 245 if i follow that plan is it mm. yeah they, they they're, they're quite strange in that they're a combination of based on how hard you train yeah and how fast you are and so if you look at the plans the 245 one or the three the sub three one will be harder yeah. than the others so to a certain extent the higher or the more aggressive a plan you choose then the harder you'll be training so in theory the faster you'll go but obviously yeah as you say the issue is that it's, it's very dependent on how fast you are to begin with or how fit you are to begin with because yeah. if you try to do say a sub three training plan you'd have to you'd end up be being going out uh, so you go out and you'd have to run at certain paces that you wouldn't be able to do yeah but even if you say if we look if you hadn't thought about the pacing and you just did the, the actual mileage you'd be running for so much longer than someone who's fast enough yeah and so suddenly instead of running for two hours on a sunday you're running for three hours yeah. and you're then doing your recovery run on a monday where you're 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 already screwed and you're then spending another hour running rather than another half an hour and so actually the the stress on your body suddenly builds up and you'll just be injured or you won't be able to complete the actual program and so a lot of them do approximate or ask you to approximate what your your speed is but that the hard thing is when you go into a plan it's hard to know if you are fast enough to actually be able to complete it because yeah I've, I've never been able to do whenever i've started marathon training plans i've tended to be quite unfit compared to how I am at the end of the marathon training plan. So it gives you these interval sessions or your tempo sessions that are based on your speed if you're quick enough to run a, a sub-three-hour marathon. So, for example, the first sub-three-hour marathon plan I had, it was asking me to do uh, one-mile intervals at 
think 10k pace and to do uh, or to two mile interviews intervals at 10k pace and to do three of those so it's essentially a 10k at your 10k pace but the 10k pace I wasn't I wasn't quick enough when I started my marathon program to be able to run a 10k at the pace I'd be able to run a 10k at the end of my marathon program. Right. So all of the first weeks I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to hit these intervals. I'd be really struggling. I wouldn't be quick enough. And only now that I've got more of an, a, a constant fitness throughout the year will it be okay for me. Yeah. Um, but it didn't mean that once I'd followed the plan I wouldn't be able to actually run a sub three. Um, so it's it's quite hard when you start because you might lose faith. Um, and, and reality, if you want to do a marathon plan, the best thing to do it it's to do for it is to do something like a cross country season where you get really fast and strong on the shorter stuff, so that you can then run good five k, ten k times before you start training for the marathon, and then you just up the miles. Right. Okay. And so. And so do you reckon that, so you, it, it wouldn't make sense, so say that you, if you're, your math is times 4.30 or 4 or, or 3.30, um, yeah. jumping to something that's too far below it for your, for your next marathon, you should, or, 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 or could you do that? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely could. You hear of people who take huge chunks off their time, and there's a few reasons why you can do that. One of them, it could be you've lost a lot of weight. The other one could be that you just smashed your previous time based on what you're expecting for your training or that you've just been training throughout and just got faster and faster and faster so you should go to something like a, a runner's world race time predictor they've got a calculator on on their websites free there's a few of them on the internet put in what you think is um a good time for you over a 5k over a 10k and that should give you an estimate of what that would translate to at a marathon. doesn't mean you'll necessarily do it, um, but that should give you an approximation. Um, and you can then use that as a starting as a starting basis. The good thing is, if you're going for, say, a 3.30 and you're following a 3.30 marathon plan, if you're quicker, doing a 3.30 marathon plan isn't going to stop you running quicker. No. It, it might not be as effective at getting a fast time as the 315 plan, but if you're naturally improving and you've got the ability to run a 320, you can do that using a 330 plan, no problem. Right. Right, okay. okay. But I'd, I'd always say use, go out, run a 5K, and use that to then get an approximate feel of how fast you naturally are. Um, and the marathon training should be able to convert that into how far she'll be once you're trained up to distances. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, all right, that's really useful. Because I think sometimes that can be really confusing. Like, like you say, you start off on a, on a training plan and you know, the first few weeks you don't hit the targets that you think you're going to do. So you're like, oh, do I have to reassess my, um, my ambitions or my expectations? Uh, and actually, you don't need to necessarily. It might just be a case of just pushing through um, and, and building up to that level of fitness. That's that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I think with everything as well, whether you're doing your long run, your interval session, or your tempo, the most important thing is to think about consistency. And yes, you can start off trying to do a, a four-mile tempo at the pace that your your training plan says. But if you're not going to finish at that pace, the same with intervals. 
same with your long run it's far better to try and start off at a pace that you can last at your interval your tempo or your long run and you're finished tired but you'd have made it and that and that's far that's going to be do you far more benefit than starting hard and fading because emotionally and physically it, it creates far more stress hormone but also emotionally it's, it's just very tough to keep your motivation up when you're, you're getting beaten by your training plan <laughs> i just think how like the first the first time i ran a marathon i did try and follow like a, a, a training plan i did i did sort of stick to it um it was um it was a nike plus one that um, you know that you that came with your shoe and mm. um and I did sort of generally stick to it but it it, it just didn't it, it didn't really go anywhere it didn't you know my everything about the you know my first marathon was was a complete disaster as, you, as you'd expect it to be um yeah but you know the the time was was nowhere near what I thought it was going to be and yeah well it, I, you know, I went into it with no expectation whereas when you go into a marathon, you should you should have a pretty reasonable expectation, like or a range between where where you think you're going to come out. And I went into that first one just li- going, I literally have no idea how long this is going to yeah. take me, and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, and that's that's the plan's fault. It should everything should be working towards the goal, and it should be able to. There should be benchmarks along the way where you do a half marathon, and you think, okay, this is where I am, so this is what I should aim for. Uh, I'm going to need to. St- we're going to need to stop there because. Cool. We- yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. We we actually turned into a podcast talking about running. Uh, we need to. We yeah. need to move. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> we'd just like to apologise to our listeners well, we're, for, we're that, for that last 40, 40 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're broadening now to our next guest, aren't we? From running to ultra and to obstacle and to adventure. Yes, it's almost as though our next guest represents the growth of a runner, where they go from certain distances to much longer distances, and 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 that's that's the segue. Absolutely, and weirdly enough, actually, the um, most of my progression or most of the races I've done have started off with rat races, um, different. So we. You've asked for him to to be on the show quite a few times, and we've wanted to get him on. Busy man. Um, but for those of you who aren't in the UK, Rat Race is one of the, if not the biggest event org. It's probably the biggest event organizer, I'd say, of a cross between adventure race, obstacle race, and running races. They, they've got the lot. Uh, they started off being more like the great urban race in America, similar to that, where it was kind of a slash, slash between a, a cross between a treasure hunt and a urban adventure they now do obstacle races survive the fittest they've got the world's biggest obstacle race uh, one lap one which is the dirty weekend they're now doing ultras they do coast to coast cycling races um yeah so we wanted to really get an insight into jim the founder how we did all that and his view on where the the industry is going really obstacle clo- races are closing a lot people seem to be doing more and more ultras you've got bigger and bigger brands in obstacle racing still um so yeah what he thinks is going to happen in the next few years so next guest we've tried to have him on before and in many ways he's actually to blame for uh, in, in my running career um obstacle racing with innovate ocr the fact i'm friends with ross friends with john so we wanted to get jim on to really understand what's happening with rat race how it began where it's going and his view on on everything ratty so welcome jim 
Well, hello guys, how are you doing? Hello. Yeah, good, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very, uh, very pleased to be here finally on the uh, the Bad Boy uh, Running Podcast. <laughs> it's what's, a great honour. Great. What's time. your excuse? What's your excuse? Why is it taking so long? I don't. I, I can't. We're not going to take the blame on this. So you've got to come up with a really <laughs> good excuse for the do badders because you've been asked for so much. So, so come on. What is oh, it? I was, I was washing my hair. That's, <laughs> that's. That I mean, it's got lovely hair compared to us. So that's uh, a good. Well, I've got more hair so, than you. Yeah, certainly do. So, um, so to I guess take it from the beginning, the first time I saw a rat race, I was I was watching TV actually uh, with my girlfriend, my then girlfriend, and Rat Race Bristol was on an incredibly. I think I'd been out all night. It was on at <laughs> something like six in the morning, and this dream of a race suddenly appeared on on the TV. Um, t- talk us through the beginning of Rat Race. Yeah, that, that's right. Wow, that, that is going a long way back. You're showing your age there, David. That yeah, was uh, circa 2005. Um, and yeah, well, Rat Race started in, in 04, and our first event was called the Rat Race Urban Adventure, which is um, the event of which you speak. Uh, we started it in Edinburgh, first edition, um, and then we span it out to a few cities across the UK and eventually across the world, actually. Um, and the idea was to take adventure sports such as running biking kayaking abseiling climbing um at that time navigating as well before smartphones even existed real maps um and take those sports out of the wild places and put them on the streets of the city um so it was a spin on what at the time was called adventure racing ar um and it was popular uh, it was really popular and it was mm. it was um, quite visual uh, we picked up a contract with channel four so it ended up on tv um, and we picked up some sponsorship as well, and, and it became uh, became a business. Um, was that and, yeah. the first year you had Channel Four involved? Yeah, the first the first year we Whoa. had a, a bizarre cast of partners. Actually, we had Channel Four, um, and we had I, I met a um, I met a cohort of Swedes um, at a party, and it transpired that one of them worked for the Swedish Tourist Board. Um, yeah. And she had some friends in various Swedish companies, including Volvo, um, SAS, Scandinavian Airlines. And, and we ended up with this um, this uh, collective of Swedish sponsors, which was brilliant, um, yeah, led by Volvo. Um, and they really funded that first race. Um, and, you know, yeah, we got this contract with Channel 4 and that kind of put it on the map. Um, of course, back then... What have you been doing? Were you, were you working in events and were you uh, an adventure racer already or...? I had, um, I just, I left a job. I used to work for Red Bull uh, for a number of years, organising events for them, predominantly uh, mm. in Scotland. And I left Red Bull about a year previous. Um, and I'd gone and lived in the Alps um, in Chamonix. And I'd learned to climb mountains and I'd had loads of fun um, climbing all over the world. Um, but I just, in the end, I ended up in Peru. Um, I had a notebook. I've still got it. It was a My Little Pony notebook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have the dolls anymore, I'm pleased to say. But um, yeah, so I ended up on this mountain in Peru and I, I just took a notebook and I, I really wanted to run my own business. And, you know, this kind of love of events and, and a bit of a background in, in yeah. outdoors just kind of fused. And the concept for this event went together and, you know, I got a bit sick of snow and ice um, and came back to the UK and uh, and put that first event together with a chap called Gary Thompson, um, who you might have heard of. Um, he, he was, well, he was Rat Race's first employee and him and I go way, way back. And he was responsible way before me for loads of crazy and zany adventure concepts in Scotland and you know we uh, we just got it on with that first uh, first rat race urban adventure concept up in Edinburgh and it, it went from there. And, and how many people were did, registered for that first race? 
Well, at, at the time, it, it was it was a big number, um, but obviously, um, you know, versus today, it was tiny. Yeah. Um, so we had 300 people um, at the time, which we were over the moon about. You know, people, yeah. believe people were going to part with their money and, and come and do something that was, you know, sounded pretty wacky on paper. Um, and they did, and they loved it. Um, and the numbers in those events, you know, were always at that level. I mean, we did one in London, yeah. uh, sort of 2007 onwards, and that got about a thousand people in it. That, that was a massive event format. Um, but you know, of course, adventure sports and, and the genre at the time, you know, it, it just wasn't as big as it was now. And you know, I guess fortunes of rat races and business have, um, you know, it's the, the, clearly the, the concepts that we uh, that we put together. I'd like to think are, are decent, but also the market has grown, um, you know, um, over and above us, and, and that's great opportunities. Um, but from those early roots, yeah, it was uh, 300 people standing on a start line at Edinburgh Castle, um, facing down a. A wacky course with Serrano finds there as well. He was uh, he was at the head of the field. He took part in that first one, um, and uh, yeah, it was, we had some hot tubs I think in Princess Street Gardens. We had a DJ and a fire engine, and um, yeah, it was it was bizarre, but it worked. Because have you have you um, heard of the Great Urban Race? I have, yeah, yeah. Because I mean they well because they're they're so big in the states. I was actually working on TV once, and we were told yeah. to. Um, to try and rip off the TV show The Race, which yeah. is essentially what they did in their their adventure racing out there, and they've become so large. But you've you've turned away from it's the first rat race format. Was that just because of numbers, or because of the amount of work, or what was the thinking around that? Well, I think an evolution. Um, you know, I mean, it was adventure racing. Um, it was a slightly quirky version. Um, there were some barriers to entry for people taking part. You know, you had to be comfortable with the idea of abseiling and getting in a kayak and navigating was it was a big barrier to entry. And although that always sounded very exciting to people, and indeed it was, you know, these were not regular things everybody would do. So it kind of yeah. numbers. Um, but survival of the fittest, um, you know, our, our urban obstacle um, race that has been going for 10 years, you know, that kind of was born out of the original rat race urban adventure. Um, you know, it was an adventure in the, in the city, but it was very much more of a bite-sized adventure, you know, a, a 10K adventure with some obstacles in it, indeed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the evolution of, of rat race as a business and as the concepts that, that we've come up with along the way, um, you know, they, they very much kind of stem from that original event but but yeah we, we couldn't run it forever um you know it was it, it, each course i should add was always different um so you know every time we planned one of those events in every city we went to and in the end we were up to about 20 cities a year was an entirely new new course um you know the route had to change the permissions changed the checkpoints we went to changed it was a huge amount of work and it just was not tenable on, on, on the scale that we were running it i mean i i, I never got to see one unfortunately so, uh, JD, have well, you, you, never know. Do you, you know the format? No, no, I don't. So um, it was, I mean, how would you describe it, Jim? Because you've mentioned adventure racing, but for me, what I loved about it was the, the unpredictability. So you'd turn up at a checkpoint and it could be you've got to suddenly do a, a tango or you've got to flip a, a pancake or just really unexpected, you're a climbing wall or, and you never really knew what was going to hit you. Yeah, that, that was basically it. I mean, the, there was there was two elements to the event. There was a Saturday, um, which we called the Mean Streets. It was uh, an evening event from six till nine, and it was basically orienteering. Uh, you had three hours 
bag as many checkpoints as you could on foot. And, and exactly as you've just said there, there were lots of different activities. Um, so, you know, scavenger hunt, come orienteering, come geocaching, you know, call it what you will, but you know, map in hand. Um, and then you went into, you know, some checkpoints were in pubs. We had one famous one in, in London where there was a um, like a head shave checkpoint in the, the old pub where Sweeney Todd used to... <laughs> Um, we had, so you had to shave your head to get the points exactly well you had to shave some hair from your body but you know some some guys even some girls went all out and did the full uh, <laughs> full uh, head shave no way so stuff like that was a bit wacky and then we had you know physical activities like biking and um, climbing and abseiling but the sort of the the real kind of meat of it came on the Sunday where it was a bike race challenge and it was the same concept, but it was a linear route that you followed. It wasn't way marked, it was still on the maps. Okay. Uh, together, checkpoints that were a bit further afield, you know, because you could cover more distance on the bikes. And people would find themselves doing things like abseiling off the Oval um, or abseiling off a skyscraper in Manchester city centre, um, you know, navigating their way through a shopping centre. And the checkpoint would be, you know, in um, Agent Provocateur or something. Um, and it was, yeah, people just loved that kind of wacky where we're we going next sort of mentality. Um, we would only ever reveal the uh, the course on the morning of the event. Um, and it was great, you know, hurtling down steps on a mountain bike and covering loads of ground in a city that you may know, you may not know. Um, and, you know, what was around the next corner. And, and how long would the planning for that take? I mean, was that just a major operation, I assume, or? It was, yeah. I mean, we had a we had a number of, of course planners that did um, did planning for us in, in different cities. Um, and in the end, I mean, we I remember doing one um, fairly memorable one down in Santiago in Chile, um, and we had the, this Chilean team doing it. Um, they'd approached us about the event, and they were great, fantastic guys. But you know, I mean, we were you know we were just lost in, in, in Chile. So yeah. Do um, with language barrier and the general sort of culture and customs, and you know they just kind of owned the concept and they together probably the best rat race urban adventure we ever had. It was wackier than any I've ever seen. I mean, we ended up in well, all over, you know, zip wire off the top of this massive skyscraper strip club, you know. Pole. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> and was was that the Brits doing that, or were you, were you doing that for the locals? That was for a local market. Uh, there was a few Brits that travelled. Um, yeah. We had a bit of a core cool following and we also provided prizes um you know to travel to other events yeah. so uh, there was a cohort came out from the uk but it was yeah it's definitely for the local market predominantly because uh, i think i think now with um it almost feels as if there's a hole in the market with apps being so readily available you know, just perfect to have your phone instead of having your, your maps and to go around on foot in, in that it, it feels like I'm surprised someone hasn't actually come back in and taken up the space that you left there. I mean, you, you tempted to, to ever come back in that kind of format. Yeah, we, we talk about it a lot. Um, and I think you're right. I think the market probably would take that concept again. Um, you know, the app needs to develop. It needs to be developed well so that it, it kind of works all the time. Um, mm. You know, because ultimately that is the, you know, the meat and potatoes of, of the concept. Um, but that level of planning that you need to make it really, really good, um, you know, the big reveal of the course and the, you know, 50 to 60 checkpoints that are all different every time. Yeah, that's still a significant amount of work. Um, yeah, yeah. As a one-off, I think would be brilliant. Um, doing it every year in multiple cities, I, I just think it's a bit too much. Yeah. So maybe a better man might, uh, might go there. So Survivor of the Fittest then came. So that was sort of three years after, you f no, two years after your first rat race. 
Yeah, so we're in year 10 uh, just now. Um, so we started in Nottingham in 2008 um, with a course that was put together with, with Men's Health magazine. They've been partners ever since. Um, and at the time, it was some, you know, fairly bog standard obstacles. Uh, yeah. On a, on a relatively inurban course, I, w- I would have to say. I mean, we actually chose the Nottingham course because it was fairly non-urban and, and, and therefore quite easy, relatively yeah. organised. I mean, part of, um, you know, what makes something like an urban event so challenging is the permissions. You know, there's so many landowners down to a micro level of, you know, who owns that pavement and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that, that, that initial edition in Nottingham was, was very much sort of down a, a kind of green corridor down the River Trent. Um, yeah. pulled in some of the sights and sounds of the city um, but it was it was certainly you know we kind of chose it as a line of least resistance and immediately 1500 people signed up and we thought wow this is yeah this is uh, this is good this is going to go somewhere because i think i'm i don't know if i did that one i either did that one or the year after where ross and i it was, it was when you had nectar as the the main sponsor oh yeah goodness shakes yep so um, I just thought that course was brilliant because you had the the water park where you could cross it. Um, you then had the steps of the football stadium. Um, it was yeah, everything about it was because Tough Guy existed, yep. but t- Tough Guy and the way it was marketed it was so different because this wasn't about being. Um, it, it it didn't it wasn't there to scare people. <laughs> it was there to just be fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And, and uh, sorry, go on. And, and, did you have any? Because I, mean, I know that Billy from from Tough Guy can be quite um, just unpredictable in who he communicates with. And I mean, have you ever had any contact with him about the fact it's an obstacle race and his was? Or I've met Billy Wilson once. Um, I actually met him at nuclear races um, a couple of years ago. Um, he, you know, I shook his hand. We shared some pleasantries. That that is my only my only dealing with Billy. He, he sent me a. Um, what I, I think is probably a relatively bizarre mail, but I don't think for him. But, you know, I mean, that, that was it really. At, at the time, um, certainly, you know, back in 08, I, I was clearly aware of Tough Guy, but, I, you know, we never had any, any dealings. And, I'd, you know, I, I haven't really had many dealings with Tough Guy at all, um, other than the, the time I met him, just the ones there. And when you've when you've gone into your races, then have you always? Because it sounds as if the first two you've you've had partnerships, you've had your sponsorships lined up. Is that almost a prerequisite of, if if you were to advise people on starting new events that you need that financial support to go in? In two thousand and four, it was the reality. Um, I mean, the model very much in, in in the area that I was operating in. Um, you know, they just weren't the consumers to. Um, you know, to pay to put an event on the ground. Um, so a sponsor-led model was was absolutely the reality. Mm. Now, um, and certainly from, from our business, our business model now is not a sponsor-based model. We wouldn't go into something requiring um, a sponsorship from the outset. Um, you know, in that respect, the, the model has changed. Uh, but, but also the expectation has changed. Um, you know, that first event in, in Nottingham in 2008, um, you know, was a good event, but it mm. certainly, was was by no means the kind of the obstacle extravaganza <laughs> that you see now at you know some of our events and, and obviously other events um, you know certainly in the world of obstacle running um, you know it, it definitely seems that people uh, people want a theme park um, and and that just wasn't the case then um, you know you could put a couple of cargo nets in and, a, and an A frame and you know people would love it for what it was um, which was you know really good fun obstacles in a in a really 
you know, kind of cool and dynamic environment, um, which was the city. Um, so yeah, in, in that respect, the model has has definitely changed in how, how you can fund an event. But I dare say the uh, the budgets for putting on an event have also uh, significantly in terms of the expectation to get decent numbers, um, you know, on the start. It's interesting though that you say that back then there just weren't the number of people wanting to do stuff like this because I don't know whether Facebook's changed um, people's perception of um, of what's possible or or that people feel they need to be doing fun things that look great on camera or, or whether it's it's just easier to communicate with people and find those customers because I mean when, what do you think when do you think it really turned in the numbers of people going to these events? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, Facebook. The, you know, it's had a massive effect for, for a number of reasons, as you say there, you know, sort of vanity being one of them, but also just being able to communicate with people and, you know, pull a load of mates together and do something fun. You know, all of those things have played a part. But I also think, you know, on a kind of macro level, you know, sport at its grassroots mass participation level has been bubbling up for, for years and years. Um an obstacle running, you know, specifically has has achieved that kind of, you know, certainly a few years ago when it when it kind of ballooned, you know, achieved that perfect storm. Mm you know people who have maybe done 5k you know the race for life events you know millions and millions of women have done those events and um, people have maybe got confidence to have done a 10k they've maybe done a triathlon you know social media started cranking up and they you know they can mobilize and get mates together and all of a sudden hey presto there's these events where you know you jump in through fire and doing that all that cool stuff that you did as a kid um, and wow you know you can go and do one of these at a, at a city near you and you know it's accessible you, you only need a pair of trainers um yeah, all of that stuff converged, I think, um, to make obstacle running certainly, you know, in the guise that it was a few years ago when it when it went gangbusters, um, mm. as it did. Um, certainly, that's what I think. And from what we saw with with survival at the time, I mean, we went from that first event, you know, with fifteen hundred people, I think it was, you know, to a series uh, of three events that had fifty thousand people in it very very quickly. Mm. No, it was four events. Uh, but the, you know, and, and sort of culminating in the Battersea Power Station event, which, you know, we launched that event in, oh, when was it? We ran it for three years before they started building flats in Battersea. Yeah, we must have launched it in 2010. Um, and, you know, that event sold out in about four weeks to nearly 15,000 people. Um, and it was just incredible. You know, people couldn't get enough of it. Um, you know, and part of that was the iconic location, clearly. Um, not not every event, you know, will do those numbers all the time. Uh, yeah. It has to be a number of factors, and, and clearly it has to be a brand people trust as well. Um, you know, but but those people that got there, um, right place, right time, you know, the, the guys that you know, um, you know, they've done well, and they capitalised on that momentum, and um, and they've put on good events. Um, you know, so, you know, Tough Mudder being, clearly being the key one. Um yeah, they, they're a bit hit and miss at the beginning, a bit of bank crash wallop, but they learned fast and, and they turned all of that momentum into a fantastic, fantastic business. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just saying how long it will last, you know, at that scale. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that's true, especially Tough Mudder. Um, but I, it's also, I mean, the, the difficult thing is getting people to come back. And we've had a discussion actually in the Facebook group about, um, didn't she maybe obstacle racing and, and ultra running is the ultra runners are often just doing more and more ultra runs going longer and longer and longer and in OCR they've got it's got to the stage now where a lot of things are very similar 
and also how can you push it more without isolating everyone else who can't do all these these technical um these technical uh, obstacles because i mean with survival and and the dirty weekend as well how have you made sure that and maybe you've got it wrong a few times you know do, do share if you have but have you have you balanced out the desire for new big exciting difficult with also having something achievable yeah and certainly we've, we've not got it right every time um but I think, you know, I, mean, I, I, I would always be a great believer in trying to keep our events um, as close as possible to the mantra with which we set out, which are events that, you know, we would personally want to do. Um, and I guess as we get a bit older, uh, not necessarily wiser, you know, different um, experiences and, and different influences come into that. Um, you know, myself and my, and my business partner, Dave, you know, we're, we're both family men now. A lot of the people at Rat Race have family. You know, we have a really good family-based running festival because it's the type of thing that we would want to go to with our kids. And I think, you know, the obstacle question, you know, is, is just that really. I mean, certainly something like Dirty Weekend, we want the challenge to be chunky. And there's no doubt that running 20 miles and doing 200. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, running 40 miles and doing 400. Which is we offer as well. uh, <laughs> there's no doubt that is, you know, a, a real balls to the wall challenge. Um, but it's got to be doable because if it's not, then, you know, your field's going to shrink every year. You know, it's not reasonable to expect people to want to come and enjoy doing stuff that, they don't enjoy um so that exhilaration of, of having finished it and saying yeah that was a hard day out but you know kicking back at the end of it and saying actually yeah maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but in a year's time i quite fancy going and doing that again that's important to us you know the stability of these challenges is really important to rat race um we've never been into suffer fests and yeah there are plenty of events out there that, that cater to that um you know but that market is only ever so big to begin with and it'll only ever get smaller you yeah. know, people go and, and suffer so that's not our thing and so you, i mean you've when did the the transition to to ultra running really come along because man v mountain you've got man v lakes suddenly slightly longer and and then you've got the wall and the coast to coast and it it looked as if it was the first few were, were certainly those those runs that looked achievable that were really hard and they're now looking as if wow these are actually serious events in terms of the you've really got to train hard to be able to even finish this let alone attempt it yeah i mean they've they've gone together at different um, paces i mean the evolution hasn't really been straight line in terms of you know we decided one day to do ultra running as a genre i mean rat race has always been kind of multi-genre but we've sat there and said, right, this year we've got to go deep into triathlon. This year we're going to go cycling. This year we're going to go obstacle running. You know, we've always kind of innovated the events that felt right to us. Um, yeah, I mean, the coast to coast, I mean, that, that's, I think this is its eighth year this year. Um, it's been in, in, the, in the rat race inventory for, for a long time. Um, and this year it doubled its entry um, in the challenger class, the two-day class. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, I think that, that speaks a lot to, to where the market's at in general. You know, as we were saying at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have maybe done an obstacle run or two or some 10Ks, etc. They're now just looking for what's next. Um, you know, we believe we can put concepts on that are truly unique, not necessarily in unique places. I mean, there's nothing unique about Snowdonia or the Scottish Highlands. You know, people climb Snowdon all the time. But, but we have an event, you know, that puts a significant number of people over Snowdon via a route that hasn't been used before. And, and there's a slight twist on, on the way that we're accessing that terrain and, and offering that event that kind of just makes it, I don't know, dare I say, a bit more exciting. 
um, you know, the rat race effects, whatever, call it whatever you want. Um, hopefully, the rat race effect, but you know, just just something that makes it accessible but also exciting. Um, and, and the Hadrian's Wall Ultra, you know, that's a classic ultra run. You know, it's, it is just running. There's no there's no bells or whistles. It's a 69 mile ultra, um, but it's Hadrian's Wall. You know, that's iconic. That's a journey. Um, granted, it's not all on the wall. It is a corridor through Hadrian's Wall country. But even with that, we're trying to put together a route that's achievable. You know, that, that event, that 69 mile ultra, you know, has a thousand people in it every year and has a 95% completion rate. That's awesome. Ooh. Yeah, that I, is good. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible that people, you know, are able to get around it. You know, I, I mean, I, I even did it two years ago. And, you know, as you know, David, you know, I, I enjoy my red wine and my burgers. But, you know, <laughs> that's true ultra runner, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <that's... laughs> But that, you know, that, that's the limit. You know, if, if we can get around it with a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of sport, spit and sawdust, um, and, and we can sort of feel the buzz of having done it, but we can yeah. get 950 of a thousand people around it too, then, you know, that's a good event in my book. Because in terms of the, because I've, I've, I'm always hearing rumours, and the, the trouble is at the moment, um, everything's, everything's stopping, everything's closing. We're losing all my favourite races, all my favourite people. So, um, you know, we've lost Day Dozen, we've lost Judgment Day, we've just lost The Suffering. Um, I've heard rumours that Survivor the Fittest may, may change its format or might not be in as many cities. I mean, what, what's, what in the next two years do you think a rat race potentially going to hold back on and, and where are you going instead? Um, I think, I mean, you know, it's certainly in terms of obstacle running and, and, and rumours about survival, you know, yeah, we, we've run it for 10 years, um, you know, and everything runs its course. Um, you know, Dirty Weekend, well, I should say not everything. Um, you know, I hope Dirty Weekend is there in 20, 30, 40 years. You know, yeah. I love cachet with Dirty Weekend that Mr. Mouse has had since, you know, the 80s um, or whenever it was it started. Um, you know, so I, I, what, what we're interested in is, is building you know, big iconic challenges that people can, um, you know, they can feel a massive sense of achievement getting to the finish line. Um, and iconic is a word that kind of gets used a lot, but mm. that, that really is the, the nub of it. You know, if you go from A to B and that's a brilliant journey and you remember it forever and you tell your mates about it and you want to come back in a few years' time and do it, that's one direction we're going. So at the sort of, I guess, at the pointy end, the challenge end, you know, some of, some of those challenges are really, really hard, um, but they're all doable. And um, and some of them aren't necessarily so hard, but they're equally as um, as exciting. At, at the other end of the spectrum, um, we also like things being accessible. Um, you know, we're not really into you know massive events with inflatables and I don't know loads of sort of happy clappy kind of stuff going on. That that's not really our thing. There still has to be a challenge at the at the core of it. But we do like the um, like the idea that we can bring more to the market. That, that you know full families, whole families can take part in together. And there's definitely more of that innovation to come. So um, I don't know, both ends of the spectrum, exciting stuff. Um, we've also got our eyes um, trained firmly overseas. It's some, um, some really out there places and concepts um, on a working title project. I've, um, I've coined the bucket list. Um, so there's a bit of that to come um, that is massively out of left field. Um, and that should a few of those should uh, should launch next year. So are you you're thinking of those as holidays for people from the UK to go and kind of take yeah. take part in? Yeah, very, very much an adventure travel product uh, for people with from people from the UK to go and take part in an event format in a place that they just probably didn't even know existed. 
Um, but again, an iconic journey nonetheless. Um, so yeah, plenty of innovation going on. And where, uh, so where, do, where do you come up with your ideas for these? Are these things like that are suggested or do you sit down and brainstorm them or do, do things emerge out of experiences you've had? I spend a lot of time sitting on the toilet looking at Google, Jeremy. So many... <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> but some of us don't come up with races. He's, he's probably there right now. <laughs> he hasn't got a camera. 